Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. Now, you don't have to understand a lot about the background of this to grasp the discouragement, the anxiety expressed by the prophet, but I will give a small explanation. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because if you read his works, he does a lot of crying. He weeps for the sinfulness and the spiritual blindness of his own people because they do not respond to his pleadings with them. Jeremiah knows that they're backslidden and he knows that God is sending judgment. And if they don't change, there's going to be a significant loss. And that bothers Jeremiah. And he's such a sensitive person that he just weeps because of this condition, this fallen condition of his people. And in this passage, he says, I just wish that my eyes were a fountain of tears so I could cry all that I, to express my anxiety. I wish that my, my head was a fountain, a stream, a spring of water. In other words, he feels so badly about the condition they are in that really no amount of tears really express how he feels about the lostness of his people. And then he seems to shift gears in the second verse When at one point he wants to weep for them. And the next moment he wants to run away from them. And in those days there was commonly found a traveling stopover. Out in a remote region where it was too far away to to reach the safety of another town. And weary travelers could stop at these very crude Uh, establishments. No furniture. Just bring your own pillow and blanket and stop over and have shelter from the elements and from the wild animals. That's all it was. It wasn't a resort by any means. And Jeremiah says, I just wish I could pack up and run out to this little hovel, this little shanty. And just get away from everything. Because the people are so wicked. And he calls them adulterers and a crowd of unfaithful people. And there's no doubt that they were, in a very real sense, adulterers. But you have to remember as well the word adultery is used in a a sense of being spiritually unfaithful to God. And that should not be lost in this as well. As, as much as they may have been physically committing sexual sins against God because of their condition, more importantly, they had forsaken God as their true love. And therefore, he calls them adulterers. Now, for Jeremiah, this desert lodge was a real place that he really did desire to run away and just get away from it. Metaphorically, for us, it represents how we can relate to Jeremiah because of our own discouragements sometimes. 
and we just want to check out. Check out here and go check in somewhere else. We want to run away. We want to get away from it. It could represent metaphorically for us a frustrating job that we have that you just can't stand it and you just want to run away from it. It could be the rigors of our schooling that are so overwhelming we just want to quit. Or it could represent even more seriously the pressures that go along with trying to make a family and function as a family. And sadly enough, sometimes people bugging out on those responsibilities. And for others, it might simply be an emotional withdrawal. So we've established that Jeremiah was susceptible to this state of mind where he just says, I quit. I just give up. Just let me go out by myself somewhere where I don't have to think about this and be confronted with it day after day. I just want to get away from it. I can't tell you how many times in my life I have felt like that. Just let me run away. I've never run away because I think my relationship with God and my responsibility, my maturity has not allowed me to fulfill my fantasies and dreams like that. But I have to admit, it sounded awful good sometimes just to say, I think it would be nice just to be able to move completely away from the circumstances and not have to deal with this anymore. Now, you fill in the blanks how that applies to you. But I've tried to pick out uh, two or three headings here so we can kind of systematically organize our thoughts this morning. And somewhere in here, maybe the arrows of the sermon will hit your heart. The first point, I would suggest that some people are fleeing to that desert lodge just to run away from responsibilities. Getting from our childhood years to our teenage years and stepping into adulthood is a shock to the system. We spent every moment of our life from the time we were born until we step into that adult world with certain perks that never come back to you as an adult. We don't have the responsibility of providing for others or providing for ourselves. We are free riders for most of that time, aren't we? And then when we suddenly step into the adult world and we start getting all of these responsibilities... How much we wish we could just go back to that simpler lifestyle when somebody else was carrying our load for us instead of us bearing our own load. I've oftentimes asked people, if you could just go back to any time in your life, when you would, you know, what time would you go to? And it's uh, interesting that so many times it's that period of time before you step into the adult world where you have to shoulder responsibilities, just uh, let mom and dad take care of it. They will feed me. They will clothe me. But we get into that adult stage, and life gets tough, doesn't it? And we just have to be strong enough to be able to face those things successfully. Now, along with this whole sermon, we're, we're probably talking about uh, things that can be defined by other words as well, like, like uh, faithfulness, like integrity, dependability. All of these things kind of point to the same thing of not checking out and not running to the desert place to find some, some hidden place for you to hide from the troubles in your life. So I, I, I ask you to ask yourself, am I a good finisher? You're the only one who can do really good inventory of you this morning. Now, if you have a spouse, they might could help you out real well. They might do a better job of inventory for you. But you need to look inward this morning. And ask yourself, am I a good finisher? I like to see myself in my best light. I would like to think, yes, I'm a good finisher. Now, oddly enough, this goes back 
to an episode in my childhood. When I was all the time tearing things apart to see how they work, tearing old radios apart and trying to analyze them and taking complicated things apart, I, just, I was fascinated by this, and, and then trying to build complicated things. So how many of you here remember that little child's game that came out many, many years ago called Mousetrap? You remember that? And you remember how all those different things worked together as the ball went through this and came down and, would, and it hit a lever and then it would trap a mouse, this little cone would come down and trap a mouse. I was so fascinated by that, I thought, I'm going to build my own Rube Goldberg contraption, you know. So I got me a piece of plywood and I started putting little pieces of wood on there and I had this, this uh, thing in my mind about all these different actions that this would do. This was going to be so fun. But I never finished it. I got started, but there it sat, kind of in the way, in our little workshop at the house for weeks, for months. And there was a time whenever I was struggling with uh, accepting this neighborhood child into our social circle because he was kind of a quiet young boy. And my dad got very angry with me for not being mature enough to be able to to make him a part of the playmate circle we had in that neighborhood. And I remember telling Daddy, Daddy's just weird. And my dad responded, which was probably uh, not the the proudest moment of his life. He said, said, look look who's calling somebody weird. You're the guy that starts these projects and never finishes them. Now, I took a long time to tell a story (laughs) to tell you why it bothers me not to finish things because things like that can have a lifelong impact on you. I didn't like being called weird by my dad. (laughs) And I sure didn't want that to be expanded into the rest of my life for being a weirdo because I start things and never finish them. So I I take the advice of Scripture when Jesus merely said, what king goes to war without first making an estimate about the size of his army and can he win that war? What builder starts to build something without first estimating the cost, lest there should be a cost overrun and he can't finish it? So those things just jump off. They leap off Scripture at me that I want to be a great finisher. I want to be a faithful finisher. Leonardo da Vinci was a genius, not only a a master painter, but he was skilled uh, as a scientist, taking dead bodies, cadavers, and learning how to peel the skin off. This This was way ahead of his time, so he could keep the inside of the body intact and see where the muscles, how they joined, and, the, and how the uh, arteries and the vessels worked. He was just so fascinated by this. He was in high demand for his artistry, whether it be sculpting, painting, or kings that hire him to help put on the most beautiful coronation that's ever been placed, ever, put, ever, ever been put on, or wedding ceremonies. And he had this mind of just how to organize things and how to decorate and how to make the biggest gala. And so he became quite in demand in his time as this brilliant man who could do almost anything. Today, we have about 15 works, artistic works of Leonardo da Vinci. Out of the many that he had started, but never finished. And he became well-known as a person who would start and never finish. Murals that were set to be the most impressive work to date that he never finished. Hired, retained by monks or by organizations or by cities or by kings. And he would start and never finish. At one time, he was commissioned to do a statue of a horse. And he had to invent how to cast this bronze horse in one piece. 
and it was meticulous what he went through in building the molds for this and the channels where the wax would go in and the channels where the wax would go out so it wouldn't leave any uh, hollow vacancies, any voids. And uh, turn the thing upside down and, and pour the, the uh, uh, bronze in from the bottom. And, and nobody had ever done this before. But he didn't finish it. Michelangelo came along when Leonardo was about, oh, in his late 40s, uh, 50s, and Michelangelo now is the young rising star. And they, they are competitors, so to speak, except Michelangelo is more eaten up with the competitive spirit than Leonardo da Vinci. He's very comfortable in himself, and he doesn't care who else. But Michelangelo is very jealous of da Vinci. And so the first time that they meet... Young Michelangelo gives the old master a piece of his mind. You're the man that starts the bronze horse and can't even finish it. And it walks away. So his reputation for not finishing was certainly getting around. Whenever he died, he said, I fear I have offended God for not having used all my skills to produce the artistry that he blessed me to be able to do. A regret at the end of his life for not being a finisher. They have, they have many, many drawings of artist work and paintings that he was going to do, but it never left the drawing table. Other paintings that he started and didn't finish it, just used it to start over and paint something totally different. And with the technology we have today, today they can see the unfinished paintings underneath. Not a good finisher. Cheating the world and cheating God out of what should have been done and could have been done simply because he did not learn how to be a great finisher. One of the most important characteristics that a person can possess is knowing how to finish what they start or being smart enough not to start what you can't finish. I watched my dad... Decided in his retirement years he wanted to build a lake. And he started pushing the clay around and building the earthen dam and rented a bulldozer that he recruited anybody who knew how to run a bulldozer. It was a Tom Sawyer kind of a thing. You know, get everybody an opportunity to come paint the fence. So he was recruiting anybody that knew how to run a bulldozer. Hey, you want to come run my bulldozer for me? Well, it sounded fun. So they was all out there pushing dirt for Dad. He got, it was a 50, it was designed to be a 56-foot earthen dam, highest earth dam in northern Missouri. And he got up to about 25 feet, and he started fearing he was running out of good clay to build the dam out of, and he quit. And he sat down and went into deep depression. I never saw my dad desert any project. I never saw him beat by anything. But I saw my dad sit down in depression, and he wouldn't talk. He's acting like depressed people act. And I would try and suggest to him, well, Dad, maybe we can just leave it at 25 feet, and it'll be what it is. No, that won't work. You know how depressed people are? No suggestions are good enough. He had his mind set on something that wasn't going to work. And he sat around for three or four years in this totally depressed state, just like staring like a zombie, checking out of life. Then one day, after he had spent four years telling us how hopeless it was and how he had gotten in over his head, it was costing too much, it was undoable, there was no clay to finish it, one day he got out uh, of his chair and got back on that dozer and started pushing dirt and finished the lake. He just had to figure out how to do it. But I was, I was worried about Dad not being able to leave a testimony of having finished what he started. Now, I can look back on something that almost beat him, but he refused to go down. And it's such an inspiration to me that whatever it is that's getting you depressed and getting you discouraged, and I think probably one of the most common things that works on us that seems almost unworkable is probably marriages. 
Now, there'd be a lot of other circumstances. As I mentioned, it might be your job. But I think relationships is one thing that we probably have most in common. That You work at it, it just doesn't seem to be working well, and somebody's getting ready to quit the whole thing. It just doesn't work. And I'm here to encourage you that running away to the desert lodge is not the answer. Quitting is not the answer. Getting it right is the answer. And working out and staying faithful to commitments that have made, that's the answer. People are quick to abandon projects sometimes when they just become more cumbersome than they had anticipated them to be. I had the privilege of knowing certain people in my life who just weren't quitters. My dad was one of them, except for that one close call. Other men that were my Sunday school teachers as I grew up. And, and just people God has placed in my life that I saw them start enormous projects. And whatever it took to finish it, they were finishers. Because an unfinished task was no testimony. But I've also ran into many people in my life that were people who ran away from promises, commitments, and responsibilities, duties, relationships. And that's where the problem we have is. People running away in discouragement. The second thing I have this morning is sometimes uh, some people flee to the desert lodge because they have complicated relationships, which I knew point one was going to bleed over into point two. I was trying to avoid going there too heavily. But not just discouragements, but these complicated relationships we have. And one of the things that people do in this case is emotional detachment. And some of you people have been victims of that, and some of you may have been perpetrators of that. But it is a painful and agonizing thing in a relationship when one finally decides to emotionally detach themselves. They know how much pain and frustration that causes. And I think maybe that's a little bit satisfying for them to have that kind of power over somebody. But for a parent to become so overwhelmed by the task of raising their child that they just one day wake up and decide, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I've talked to I'm blue in the face, and I, I, I'm tired of it, so you just go ahead and live your life, and I'm going to leave you alone. And they have done everything in their effort to break that parent-child relationship because the parent is frustrated with trying to deal with the child. So it's broken in emotional removal. Or in a marriage where it begins with that silent treatment. That's, that's the mini version of this emotional detachment. I'm going to teach them for a couple of days what it feels like not to be able to have my attention, my respect. So many of you may have suffered from this temporary silent treatment. Or maybe some of you have discovered that's one of the most powerful weapons you have in your arsenal, so you use it from time to time. We all know that that's not what God wants for us because in doing that, we're basically checking in to the desert lodge and saying, I don't want to deal with this. Now, part of the problem has to do with pain. Just by nature, we're people that don't like pain. I don't like pain. I avoid it whenever I can. But in a relationship, hurts that come from the difficulties of relationships can be some of the deepest hurts you've ever felt in your life. And so some people have decided to deal with that to cope with that by guarding themselves. And you've heard it before. People saying, I just don't want to let anybody get close to me. I don't want to get hurt. And that's the way they deal with it. 
And if you're one of those people this morning, think about what I just said. I don't want to let you get close because I don't want to get hurt. In other words, to you, it's more important to avoid getting hurt than it is to have closeness with somebody. So the fact of the matter is, if you ostracize others because you are afraid of pain, you are robbing yourself of the luxury of having a close relationship with somebody. You cannot have love if you are not willing to take pain. You have to understand love involves hurting. It's a natural part of it. And people who think it shouldn't be a part of it, they've read too many fairy tales, and then think being in love should never have any pain. You're not in touch with reality. Because how precious it is to have that intimacy, that closeness with somebody, closeness with family, closeness with friends, my closeness with my wife. When we're close, when we're on the same frequency, there is nothing in this world that is more rewarding. When our souls are tied and knit together, it is the most wonderful feeling in the world. And those times when we are not jiving together, when there is friction, when there is difficulty, I count it worth every moment of pain because I like that other place so much. I will endure the pain in order to have that because if I don't endure the pain, I'll never get closeness. You can apply that to God. I've been hurt so many times. I just I don't want anything to do with church. I don't want anything to do with God. Do you realize what you're robbing yourself of because you want to spare yourself the inconvenience of dealing with difficulties and pain in your life? Yet when you realize how overwhelming the love of God is, you are willing to go through those trials because you can't have God without having the other as well. running from these relationships. This is not the emotionally aloof person that I've just talked about, but this is the person that is literally, physically the deserter. I'm heartbroken when I read the stories of women who give birth and they abandon their baby in some bathroom or some back alley and they run away from it because they don't want the responsibility. But they will never know the pleasure of holding that tiny baby in their arms and the first time that baby focuses, the eyes finally start making sense out of all the blurred things and looks in mother's eyes and smiles because they didn't want the responsibility of a child. They will never know what it is to hear that child's first giggle. They will never know what it is to hear the first word of the child that might be mama or preferably daddy. They'll never know because they don't want the pain and the inconvenience and the responsibility of raising a child. So they rob themselves of the beautiful things. Marriages that must be held together through all storms. If you do not do that, you will never know the joy of you two together watching your children graduate, watching them go to college, watching them get a family, watching them get married. You'll never know that because it'll always be a reunion where you can have dog fights and cat fights again because you didn't want the responsibility. How important it is not to run from the difficulties and the struggles of our relationships. I'm appalled when a husband or wife abandons their family. A few years ago, a friend of mine who had been a minister, a pastor, ever since I was a teenager, because when I was, I had a, teen, when I was a teenager and we had our gospel singing group, our old quartet, we used to go sing for this pastor. And then just before I became the pastor of this church, he was pastoring a church in northern Missouri and I was between churches. I was doing some interim work, interim pastoring in small churches. And I went up and I, I ministered in his church a couple of times. And I moved up here to this church and word came back within just a couple of years of moving. That pastor had left his wife and left his church and has moved away. 
just just left it all behind. I was puzzled. I was heartbroken. I was I was furious. Uh, I, all of these mixture of emotions just stirring in me. The third thing I have from this scripture this morning to offer you is some flee to that desert lodge because of their discouragement. This is what Jeremiah was dealing with. He had preached to his backslidden people and he had called them very clearly to repentance. But he was heartbroken that they weren't responding to him. How could they be so complacent in their sins without guilt and without remorse? And under the rule of wicked kings Manasseh and Ammon, Israel not only was in the process of backsliding, but under Manasseh and Ammon, they had become all the more wicked because of the wickedness of these kings. And they had sunk low into idolatry and all manner of wickedness. Even their priests and their prophets in Jeremiah's day were totally corrupt. And Jeremiah felt like the only prophet left who was really listening to God. And he was used as the mouthpiece of God. And he begged the people to go back and once again walk in the old paths of God's law. Because they had deserted it. They had forsaken it. They, it didn't matter what God wanted of them. They were now making up their own rules. And Jeremiah described their fallen state saying they had forsaken the fountain of living water. That would be God. And instead of following God, they were hewing out their own cisterns. A cistern was not a source of water. A cistern was filled from other sources and became a temporary source of water. But it wasn't a stream. It wasn't a river. It was just a place to gather and accumulate some water. So God tells Jeremiah, tell them, you've rejected me the fountain of life, the stream of life. And you've built your own cisterns, and in the process you've built leaky cisterns, broken cisterns. So you've got cisterns that you're relying on somebody else to fill them, but you're not relying on me. And not only that, they can't be filled because they don't work. And this was a spiritual description of Israel. Where were they getting their life-sustaining force from? Not from God, certainly not from themselves. Their old broken cisterns were laughable. And uh, this is all metaphorical. Cisterns referring to Israel's abandonment of God and their feeble attempt to provide for themselves. But God looking at them and saying, it's not working very well. Not going very well for you, is it? And you remember the story of Jehoiakim because I preached on this probably in the past year. And he ordered certain prophecies of Jeremiah to be brought to him in writing. Jeremiah was kind of the thorn in the side of the kings and the kingdom and the backslidden people. So King Jehoiakim says, gather up all his prophecies that you can find and bring them before me and read them to me. And so they did. They they brought the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah may have hoped against hope that the king would hear the prophecies and give heed to them and change. But he did not know Jehoiakim was going to do this. They brought the prophecies forward, and as each prophecy was read, it was a prophecy of, you're living wrong, judgment is coming, get right. All put in different forms, but that was the essence of it. As each prophecy was written, the king took the prophecy, and with his knife he cut it off and he cut it to ribbons. They burned it. Now read another one. And they read another one, and he was not listening. He was not heeding. He was confronting God. And another prophecy read, did the same thing. Destroy that prophecy one by one. Give me all these prophecies. I'm going to show you what I think of them. I'll cut them to shreds. I'll burn them up. And now we're done with all this nonsense of judgment and prophecies and repentance. You know, the book of Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. A whole book about how discouraged this prophet feels. The book of Lamentations has been called the funeral dirge for Jerusalem. It's just speaking of how lost and how hopeless Jerusalem is without God. 
No wonder Jeremiah grew discouraged. No wonder he longed just to run away from hard-hearted people and move into some remote lodge. No wonder he was tired of watching his people slowly self-destruct. Discouraged. And just a couple of points here. Sometimes we get discouraged by the proliferation of sin. Am I the only one here today that feels like this? Or do you sometimes feel as fast as America is losing its Christian virtues and its moral bearings? That the darkness is encroaching upon us and we're losing the light and we're losing the battle. Sin is just encroaching. Sin is annexing land and surrounding us. Sins that at one time were never to be found in the convenience of your home are now in everybody's home and available. When we used to think that it was appropriate if we were going to be moral, decent people to watch our language. We're not watching our language anymore. Young people in Christianity are talking in in shocking blue language. And I feel like sin is just taking over. I'm still old-fashioned. I still believe that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what comes out here is here. And if it's nothing but garbage that we're spewing out, there's a heart problem. I had a men's ministry leader that I inherited when I took a church in California that he was well-known in that church for having pretty salty language. And they told me when I came in, said, this guy, he just, he, he talks filthy all the time. And one of them, I said, well, why haven't you done anything about it? And they said, one pastor said, well, I did one time, and he just passed it off and said, ah, it's just guy talk. I said, from the abundance of the heart. And I feel like when God sees me not only outside, but he sees me inside. I have a responsibility before my God to guard my mouth, guard my thoughts, and let what comes forth be pleasing unto God. Not disappointing to Him, not embarrassing to Him, but pleasing to Him. And the trend is, and it's going to continue to be, to try and filthy up and dirty up our language. I'm calling on Christians that are here today and anybody interested in trying to keep some sense of decency in our society. Would you work with me to try and keep your communication pure and holy before God? Is that not a reasonable thing to do? We get discouraged by what seems to be the proliferation of sin. The second thing that discourages people is the failure of God's people. It's related to the previous point. The greater the proliferation of sin, the more temptations we have to battle, and the more temptations we have to battle, the more pressure it is given to us to give in to the trends and surrender to the current, and the more casualties we have in the Christian camp. So, while there are times that I feel discouraged and almost overwhelmed by the presence and the increase of wickedness in this world, I am able to process that as a Christian man and a Bible-believing man to know that in spite of the fact it looks like things are getting pretty bad here, that Christ will have the ultimate victory, he will not allow evil to prevail, and there will be a time when all things are going to be put under his feet. I can process that. So I don't give up. I remind myself that's the purpose of the church, the mission of the church, and it, it has everything to do with shining light in darkness. That's our business. Without darkness, we're out of a job. We are supposed to be 
doing this. We are supposed to be able to maturely accept the fact that there is darkness in this world. And sometimes it's darker in some places than in others. And sometimes it gets dark right around us. But we have light. That's what light is for, is to shine it in the darkness and lead other people out. So, see, I'm processing. I can deal with this. The purpose of the church is evangelism. We are here to win the lost. if, If we were not here to win the lost, what would be the purpose of our church? A social gathering? Just a place for like-minded individuals to get together? Would it be just to have feel-good services? And I like the worship we have. I like what worship we have today. But that's not the purpose of the church. If we're not evangelizing and we're just coming together so we can feel good and go home, we might as well close the whole business down. We are supposed to be trying to reach the lost. Take a life-changing message to those who are in darkness and bound by sin. And sometimes when I feel discouraged by the aggressive pro- proliferation of sin, I just remember that's our purpose for being here. We got planted to be light in darkness. But if there's one thing that truly discourages me more than anything else I can think of, it's the failures within the camp of Christianity. It's the blatant rebellion against God's word. It's the defectors from the faith. It's as a pastor watching those who have been given God's word, who have been taught God's word, who knows God's word, who just blatantly rebel against it. And at that point, I feel like a total failure. You say, Pastor, you shouldn't take it personally. You wouldn't want a pastor that doesn't take it personally. Jeremiah took it personally. He wept outside of Jerusalem and and over his people. And and it would have been easy for somebody to go and say, Jeremiah, don't do it. Don't take it personally. That's their problem. He took it personally. He was telling them the truth, and they were not receiving the truth. They were not changing. Of course he took it personally. I always think, well, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Maybe I didn't preach well enough. Maybe people are not believing what I say. Maybe I'm presenting the truth in such a way it's getting lost. And maybe just people think it's a fine speech, but it's not penetrating the heart. Maybe I'm not praying enough. Maybe I'm taking it personally. Whenever we're preaching the Ten Commandments and the things that thou shalt not send, the Christians are doing it. I take it personally. I won't be judged for your sins. You will. But I feel like I failed. A few weeks ago, World Vision International, one of the largest Christian charities in the United States, revised their hiring policy, their employment policy, to approve of same-sex marriages. President Richard Stearns explained that the change was not a compromise. It was an act of keeping Christian unity, because so many Christians were changing on that, that if they didn't change, they wouldn't be united. A few days after this severe backlash that was going to dramatically cut the money that was being given to World Vision to carry out their mission, they decided to change their mind again and went back to their original policy. I'm discouraged by the defections in the world Christian community. But just a few days ago, and this one is a shocker, Dan Hasseltine, lead singer of Jars of Clay, went to Twitter and tweeted a series of messages. The first message, not meaning to stir things up, but is there a non-speculative or non-slippery slope reason why gays shouldn't marry. I don't hear one. Second tweet. I'm trying to make sense of the conservative argument, but it doesn't hold up to basic scrutiny. Feels akin to women's suffrage. Next tweet. I don't see a negative effect to allowing gay marriage, no societal breakdown, no war on traditional marriage. Anyone? Next tweet. Because most people read and interpret Scripture wrong, I don't think Scripture clearly states much of anything regarding morality. 
Dr. Michael Brown, who is a brilliant theologian and defender of the faith today, responded to this. Though he wasn't talking directly to Dan, he made a public response. And he said, Dan, you wrote, I never liked the phrase, Scripture clearly says, because most people read and interpret Scripture wrong. And Dr. Brown continues in his response and says, Perhaps this is the root of your problem. Is the Bible not clear about anything to you? Sin, salvation, forgiveness, Jesus being the one and only Savior and Lord, adultery being bad, fidelity being good. Shall I list a hundred more items that are abundantly clear in Scripture? But it appears you're not really certain about many moral issues based on your tweet that you said, I don't think Scripture clearly states much of anything regarding morality. And I don't particularly care about Scripture's stance on what is wrong. I care more about how we should treat people. Now, there's a limp-wristed version of Christianity for the 21st century, and it's getting very popular. Many of the uh, popular young pastors today are going more for it's all about how you treat your neighbor. It has nothing to do with right and wrong and sin and judgment. It's just how being, getting along with people. It's what it's all about. And Dr. Brown continues and says, Did you really mean to write this? Is it possible to spend five minutes reading God's precious word without recognizing that Scripture clearly states a tremendous amount regarding morality? And without his moral standards, we will never know how to treat other people. Then in conclusion, Dr. Brown warns us, if these tweets expose the soft, scripturally weak underbelly of the contemporary Christian music scene, then let's put on our seatbelts and expect the worst. I don't know if it does. I'm not here to speak for all of contemporary Christian music. I'm here to tell you that this young man in contemporary Christian music is so far off in left field, how can you be operating in the Christian realm, singing Christian music about God, about the Bible, about His Word, and come away with lame brain philosophies like the Bible doesn't teach us anything about morality and nobody can understand it. I get discouraged when I see within the kingdom of Christianity people going soft-headed like this, people defective from the faith. I get discouraged. When I see them leaving the principles of morality, I get discouraged. When I see people quitting the faith, I get discouraged. That's the one thing that got Elijah more more discouraged than anything else. uh, Elijah, the man of, of many powerful, mighty miracles of God, when he thought he was the only one left, he wanted to die. Because the feeling of being ineffective And all alone is one of the most powerful, discouraging things we can experience. From time to time, people, would you remind me we're not alone? I need to know. I need to be reminded, as God did to Elijah, there's a remnant that still has not bowed their knee to Baal. (laughs) There are still people who love God the old-fashioned way. There are still people who believe that His Bible, His Word, His truth is the same yesterday and today and forever. I need to know that. I end with this thought. Peter and the empty nets. Jesus was collecting His team of followers and He went to the boat where Peter and His crew were fishing. The fishing boat night was done and they had put away their nets and Jesus borrowed the boat for a minute to address the people. We don't know much about what was said on that occasion because it moves rapidly to the real story here. And that is when he was done talking to the people and borrowing the boat, then he turns to Peter and he says, throw your nets, go out into the deep and throw your nets over over the side and catch a big, catch a fish. And Peter says, we've put the nets up. We've toiled all night long. The fish are not running. It's not going to work. But then he he quickly says, and this is to Peter's credit, after he had expressed his exasperation 
at his night of fruitless fishing. He says, nevertheless, because you ask me, I will. And that's all Jesus was looking for. He wasn't looking for a successful fisherman. He was looking for a faithful fisherman. He wasn't looking for somebody that had the biggest haul of fish. He was looking for somebody who would obey without question. Who, in spite of how hard it's been, would say, just because you asked. It does seem impossible. I am weary. I am tired. But God, because you asked, I'll give it another try. And that's the kind of people God was looking for to form the apostles out of. Now, there's a lot of things I can't do as well as other people. At my age, 60 years old, I've got a lot of other ministers in the ministry that have been pursuing higher education all these years and getting their master's, getting their doctorate. I don't have time left to be able to even compete with these guys. They've got brains that just pulsate when they think. I'm still wrestling with the simplicity of the Scripture. I, they, they can outpace me theologically. There are many preachers that are much better, smoother, more effective orators than I am. I can't hold a candle to them. There are many that somehow are more effective kingdom builders. Many of them more effective. But there's one thing where I can keep pace with anybody. I don't quit. And I don't care what college you've gone to, what you know, what kind of personality I have. What you, there's one thing about it. If God's looking for somebody and he asks him to go at it again, I'm going to say, God, just because you ask, I'm going to do it. Now, that's what God's looking for in you. You might think you are not as good as somebody else or as effective or as prepared or as trained or as talented or as skilled. But it's when Jesus said, the question is, if I ask you to do it, will you do it for me? Peter said, because you asked, I will. So whenever we get discouraged, because it seems so many are quitting, and it seems like sometimes our efforts are ineffective, and how many of you parents here have lost children, and the enemy has been working on you and telling you what a rotten parent you've been and how ineffective you are and all of your efforts were for nothing because they don't listen to you and they don't listen to God, and the enemy can pound on you and just tell you, you're no good. If you'd have been a good parent like those people, your children would have turned out all right, and that's a lie. The question is, are you faithful to the end because of Every one of you that are sitting here today, I want to fast forward in 10 years. And I want to find out in 10 years if you plan on still loving God. Or if you're looking for a getting off place in the next year or two. Or if your constitution is so weak that if you get hit sideways with some kind of a calamity in your life, you're going to hang it up and blame God and quit the church. And, and you just, or are you going to be faithful to the end? Bow your heads.